We'll actually have two readings today. The first reading is Isaiah 11, verses 1 to 5. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth, He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash round his waist. Our second reading is from John 1. John 1, verses 19 to 34. Now, This was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely. I am not the Christ. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, Why then do you baptize if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany, on the other side of the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I would not have known him except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen, and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is God's word. Thank you, Aaron. Do keep that passage open. Let's pray before we consider this passage together. God, our Father, we ask that in your kindness you would work by your Holy Spirit in our hearts to open our ears and to change us by the truth of Jesus. In his name. Amen. Why does it have to be Jesus? Somebody might say, I, this happens sometimes at, at, at times of life, I, I want to change. 
I want to be a better person. It may be going off to university or starting a proper job for the first time or getting married or having, becoming a parent or retirement. There are all sorts of stages in life. And, and somebody says, I want to be a better person. I want to reshape my life. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you might well want to say to your Christian friends, I, I want to shape my life. I want to be a better person. But why does it have to be Jesus? Why can't it be one of the other great world religions? Why can't it be some form of Buddhism or Islam or, or, or moral, upright, morally serious atheism, humanism, or, or some kind of personal spirituality? I mean, I'm very happy for you to have Jesus, and uh, you tell me that he's helpful to you, but why does it have to be Jesus? Why do you insist on that? And, of course, for those of us who are Christians, quite often we'll come... Um, we'll rub up against in the workplace um, delightful people who are followers of other religions or none. And we'll find ourselves wondering and asking ourselves the question, why does it have to be Jesus? And sometimes people might say to us, if we're Christian people, what benefit do you get from being a Christian? What benefit do you get from Jesus? I want us to spend a few minutes this morning in the company of one of the greatest religious leaders that the world has ever known. And I'm not talking about Jesus. One of the very greatest religious leaders that the world has ever known, John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, as he's known to us uh, from the Bible. And we're going to put him in the witness box to give his testimony in court for Jesus. If you were here last Sunday morning, uh, you may remember that we were looking at John's, John the Gospel writer's prologue, verses 1 to 18, his kind of front entrance porch for his gospel. And you may remember that in verses 6, 7, and 8, he introduces John the Baptist. He says there was a man sent from God. His name was John, John the Baptist. And he, he came to give testimony For Jesus. He mentions him again in verse 15. John testifies concerning Jesus. And in this morning's passage, we hear his testimony. You'll see, if you look at the the beginning verse and the end verse, it's bracketed by testimony. Verse 19, he says this, uh, uh, the gospel writer says, this was John's testimony. And if you look at the end, verse 34, I have seen and I testify. So let's listen to the testimony of one of the greatest religious leaders the world has ever seen. And I want us to learn three things from his testimony. And the first is this, that the very best religion in the world cannot change me, not change me in the way that I need to be changed. I can't do it, we can't do it, says John. So Verse 19, this was John the Baptist's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem, that is the Jewish leaders, sent priests and Levites, that is temple assistants, to ask him who he was. Why did they send to ask him who he was? He was operating just the other side of the Jordan, not very far from Jerusalem. And uh, something extraordinary was happening there. 
John the Gospel writer, I think there's good reason to, to, to say that John the Gospel writer expects his readers to know the John the Baptist story. There are some pretty big hints of that uh, in his Gospel. But we may not be familiar with the John the Baptist story, so let me tell you what was happening. After the end of what we call the Old Testament period, there was about four centuries of silence from God. There were no prophets, nobody claiming with any plausibility to speak from the God of Israel. So there was this long silence. And then suddenly, a strange, strong figure appeared in the wilderness near Jerusalem, the son of a Jewish priest. His name was John. And he began his ministry, which turned into arguably the greatest movement of religious revival that the world has ever seen. And his message was, you've got to turn around. You've got to change. You've got to repent. You've got to turn around. You've got to change. You've got to repent. He was a gutsy, courageous preacher. And people came to him, not just from Jerusalem and and Judea, the province around there. They came from further north and much further north, From hundreds and hundreds of miles around, people flocked to this strange preacher. And he preached to them this massive movement of religious revival. And then he baptized them. He baptized Jewish people. You never did that. Sometimes you'd baptize a Gentile if they wanted to come within the orbit of Judaism. But he baptized Jewish people. And so not surprisingly... This was kind of headline news, and it went on day after day, week after week, month after month. And so not surprisingly, they sent this official delegation, verse nine, to say, 19, to say to him, who, who are you? What's going on? Who are you that um, you, you, you're, you're doing this? And to start with, it's very frustrating for them, because uh, his first uh, three things he says are all negative. So verse 20, he didn't fail to confess, but he confessed freely And after a build-up like that, you think he's going to say something really big. He didn't fail to confess. He confessed freely, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Why did he need to say that? Well, of course, Twitter was full of, you know, people were tweeting all over the place. I've been to this amazing preacher. He says, I've got to turn my life around. We're all turning our lives around. Is he the Messiah? So he says, no, I'm not the Messiah. We long for a Messiah, don't we? We long for messianic figures. And if you remember when Barack Obama was elected the first time as president, there was quite a lot of messianic language used of him. He's a, he's a kind of messianic figure. He's the one we need. He's the figure who can lead us into the new age of hope. Before that, in 1990, when Nelson Mandela was uh, released from hospital, uh, sorry, from uh, prison, he was released from prison, and, and there was a big rally in Soweto, of uh, black South Africans, I guess, mostly. And, and, and the chairman of the South African Youth Congress greeted him and, and said, Comrade President, here are your people gathered to pay tribute to their Messiah. And he went on later. He said, now that their Messiah and Savior is released, we want to be shown the way to freedom. We long for messianic figures. We, we long for a Messiah. And John the Baptist says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Christ. Then who are you, they asked, verse 21. Are you Elijah? Elijah was one of the the great Premier League prophets of Israel's history. 
And he had a terrific ministry of turning people round, which was John the Baptist was saying, you've got to turn round, you've got to repent, you've got to change. So they said, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Jesus later said he was a kind of Elijah figure, but, but he wasn't, he said, no, I'm not the Elijah in the final sense in which you're, you're expecting that. And then they said to him, verse 21, are you the prophet? That's a reference back to the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, I guess we'll get it when, we, when, when we're preaching through Deuteronomy later, when we come back to that. In Deuteronomy 18, uh, God says to Moses, when you die, I'm going to raise up another prophet like you. And in one sense, all the true prophets of the Old Testament were like Moses. They told the truth. They, they told what God said. But the end of the book of Deuteronomy says, rather sadly, since Moses died, there hasn't arisen another prophet like Moses who has, who has brought his people out of slavery with wonders and miracles and signs. And so, so when they said to John the Baptist, are you the prophet? They're saying, are you the final figure? Are you the one who can lead us out of slavery? Are you the one who can give us true freedom for which we've always, always longed? Are you the prophet? And John the Baptist says, no. I don't know if you've noticed how John the Baptist's answers get shorter and shorter. To start with, he says, I'm not the Christ. Are you Elijah? I'm not. Are you the prophet? No. (laughs) I don't want to talk about myself. So stop asking me about myself. And so they ask him, verse 22, who are you? Give us an answer. We can't, we've got to write something in our report. We can't go back to the authorities in Jerusalem, just say what you're not. We need to tell him what you are. Tell us what you say about yourself. And he says, I don't want to talk about myself, verse 23. I'm just a voice. And the voice of one calling in the desert makes straight the way for the Lord. He quotes from the prophet Isaiah in chapter 40, where Isaiah is writing words for the Jews when they were in, not in, in slavery in Egypt, but in exile in Babylon. And he says, here's the voice crying out in the, in the desert, crying out, get ready for God to come. Get ready to, for God to bring you out of exile in Babylon, just as Moses brought you out of exile, out of, um, slavery in Egypt. And I'm just that voice. I bap- and so then they said to him, well, that's all very well if you're a voice, but why are you baptizing people? Verse 26. And he says, I baptize with water. I can get you wet. But among you stands one you do not know, one you don't recognize. He looks just the same as everybody else. You don't know who he is. You don't recognize him. And he's the one who comes after me. And he is so much more important than me, than I. And remember, this is the voice of the last great climactic prophet of the greatest and the truest religion that the world has ever known. And he says, the one coming after me is so great that I'm not worthy to untie or tie up his sandals. And then the day ends. That's the end of that day. The next verse says the next day. So overnight, everybody must have been thinking, well, he's not the Christ, the Messiah. He's not Elijah, the final prophet. He's not the prophet. He's just a voice. And he's telling us that after him is going to come somebody very, very great. Let me pause for a moment there. 
The John the Baptist movement was a remarkable thing. A couple of decades later, in Ephesus, hundreds of miles away, you read in the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 19, they met a whole bunch, a dozen men, who were still followers of John the Baptist. It was an astonishing movement. John the Baptist had long since been beheaded for his courage and his preaching. And the movement went on. But think about this. John the Baptist was the living example of the greatest and truest religion the world has ever known at its very best and its most powerful and its most life-changing. And he says, I'm not the one. He says, if you want to be changed, I can't do it. So just think for a moment, if that's the case with the greatest religion, how much more with other religions and philosophies and ways of coping with life? And the message of John the Baptist effectively is this, that whatever religion, and it may be a formal world religion, it may be an informal thing, it may be just English niceness and pragmatism and getting on with life, it may be a decent sort of humanism, it may be a personal spirituality, whatever it is, you and I can probably find some good things in them, most of them anyway. But whatever it is, it's not enough to change us the way we need to be changed. And it will leave us, in the end, dissatisfied. And even the most genuine and sincere follower of a philosophy, a well-meaning philosophy or religion or way of life, will at some point hit the buffers and realize that what John the Baptist says is true, that not even the best religion in the world can change us the way we need to be changed. So let's wake up the next morning, verse 29, And see what John says. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus, who was his younger cousin. He saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said... And I take it John the Baptist at this point is not just giving a private interview with the official delegation from Jerusalem. He sees Jesus, his younger cousin, walking towards him. And he says for the whole world to hear, look, look. And he tells us two things about this man who looks the same as everybody else. Jesus doesn't walk up with fair hair and blue eyes and a halo. You wouldn't notice him looking any different from all the other Semitic people around there. But John the Baptist points to him and he says, look. And the first thing he says about him is this, that only Jesus can take away my sins. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he's not saying that this man can take away automatically all the sins of everybody. Later in John John's gospel, Jesus says to some people, if you don't trust in me, you will die in your sins. So it's not an automatic thing, but John the Baptist is saying, look, this, and he's saying it to a whole bunch of people whose consciences have been awakened. He's saying it to a whole bunch of people who've who've gone to the River Jordan with John the Baptist because they know that they're messed up people and they know that they need to change and they know that John the Baptist can't change them. All he can do is get them wet. And he says, look, this man walking towards me, this man is the lamb. And it's Old Testament language for an animal, symbolically, 
taking the punishment for our sins in a sacrifice. Look, the lamb, maybe the Passover lamb. Look, the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. And so the first positive thing that John the Baptist says, and this is so critical to Christianity, is this. Only Jesus, only Jesus can take away sins. Only Jesus is the one who, because he is the eternal word, God with God, made flesh, is the one whose sacrifice has infinite value, is the one who is perfectly good and has no sin of his own to die for. Only he can take away sins. And it's a wonderful privilege for every, for every Christian to be able to say to a man and woman or woman whose conscience is awakened, look, there is a lamb. Look, there is a sacrifice. Look, Jesus can take away your sins. I came across a quotation from a Japanese Christian in the last century writing about his spiritual journey. He died in, in 1960. And uh, this man, he was called Toyohiko Kagawa. And he said, I am grateful for Shinto, for Buddhism, and for Confucianism. I owe much to these faiths. The fact that I was born with a spirit of reverence, that I have an insatiable craving for values which transcend this earthly life, and that I strive to walk the way of the golden mean, I owe entirely to the influence of those ethnic faiths. Yet these three faiths utterly failed to minister to my heart's deepest need. I was a pilgrim on a long, long road that had no turning. I was weary. I was footsore. I wandered through a dark and dismal world where tragedies were thick. Buddhism teaches great compassion. But since the beginning of time, who has declared this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Why does it have to be Jesus? There's the first reason. Only Jesus can take away sins. And I don't know if, if, if you're like me, if you're a Christian man or woman, there are times when we find ourselves in the company of somebody who is deeply troubled by sin. Of course, there are plenty of times we find ourselves in the company of people who aren't troubled by sin, in which case we must pray that consciences will be awakened so the men and women will be troubled by sin. But you find yourself in the company of somebody who is troubled by sin. I think back some years to an evening, Carolyn and I were with a good friend who was deeply troubled by some sin in their past. And it is a wonderful thing to be able to say, look, the Lamb of God. Look, whatever your messed upness, whatever your sin, whatever the dirt, whatever the guilt, whatever it is in your past, whatever it is, there is the Lamb who takes away sins. It has to be Jesus. Old Testament Judaism can't do it. No religion, no philosophy, no worldview can do this. Only Jesus, the Word made flesh, dying on the cross, can take away sins. But there's more. And John goes on. Not only can, is Jesus the only one who can take away sins, verses 31 to 33, only Jesus 
can baptize me with the Holy Spirit. And the second unique thing that Jesus can do that John goes on to is the baptism with the Holy Spirit. So verse 33, John the Baptist says, I myself did not know him. Now in one sense, John the Baptist knew him. He was his younger cousin. Of course, he knew him. And if you read Matthew's gospel, you'll know that he knew something about him. He knew that Jesus of Nazareth was a good man. So that when Jesus of Nazareth came to be baptized in a baptism of repentance, John the Baptist said, um, I don't know if this is appropriate. Because he knew, he knew he was his cousin. He knew he was good. But he says here, I didn't know him. I didn't really know. I didn't fully know who he was. But, verse 31, the reason I came baptizing with water, the reason for this huge great movement of religious revival, the reason for the whole John the Baptist ministry was that this man might be revealed to Israel. Isn't that remarkable? The reason for this huge great mass outpouring of repentance and of lives turning around, the reason for the whole thing was so that one man might be seen to be the man we need. And then he goes on and he says, he tells us how he came to realize really who he was. Verse 32, then John gave this testimony. And he's talking about the moment when he baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. And the, the baptism is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But John, in John's Gospel, we just have this. John gave this testimony. I saw the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the personal presence of God. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove. In that paradox that the invisible Spirit comes down in this visible form like a dove and remain on him. And in John's gospel, we get that word, remain, abide, stay on him. I saw the Spirit come down on him, and in some way, I knew that the Holy Spirit had come down on Jesus of Nazareth and was not just enduing him with power for a few months or a few years. So this wasn't like in the Old Testament when the Holy Spirit came down on somebody like Samson or Gideon for a little while and then went away again. I saw the Holy Spirit, and in some way I knew that the Spirit of God had come down on him and was remaining on him. That here, uniquely in the history of the human race, there was a human being who was so closely identified with the Spirit of God that the two of them were indivisible. So much so that in years to come, later we read later in the New Testament, the Spirit is so closely identified with Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, that he becomes called the Spirit of Christ or the Spirit of Jesus. I saw the Spirit come down and remain on him. And then he says, verse 33, I wouldn't have known him. I wouldn't have grasped fully who he was, except that the one who sent me to baptize with water, that is God the Father, told me, the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. So when John saw this happen at Jesus' baptism, his eyes were opened. 
And he, he realized that all his frustrations were coming to an end because, of course, John the Baptist, he repeatedly said, I baptize with water. And behind that lies a frustration. I'd love to turn your life round from the inside, but the best I can do is get you wet. That's all I can do. I can preach to you, I can appeal to you, and I can pour some water on you or dunk you in water or whatever he did. I can get you wet on the outside, symbolically. But the thing I can't do that every well-meaning religious leader has wanted to do, I can't change you on the inside. I can't baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I cannot pour over you and into you the personal presence of God himself. But this man can. That's a wonderful thing, isn't it? I said at the beginning or near the beginning that other religions and worldviews and philosophies can't change us. And I ought to qualify that because, of course, they can. They can change us on the outside. Of course they can. You buy into Buddhism or something, you'll, you'll start behaving differently. Buy into Islam, you'll start behaving differently. Of course they can change us on the outside. I buy into a, a kind of well-meaning atheistic humanism. It'll change me on the outside. I'll begin saying different things and I might begin doing different things. But in my heart, I'll be unchanged. And only Jesus, after he has taken away sins, after he has cleansed the human heart, after he's died on the cross and made it possible for you and I to have our sins taken away, to be made clean on the inside, only Jesus can pour into your heart or mine, which he does the day a man or woman becomes a real believer in Christ. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and begin to change you on the inside. Not that you and I are then perfect, that's patently obvious, But the Holy Spirit of God has invaded our hearts on the inside. And from that day on, there is war inside me. And it's a war that God, by his Holy Spirit, will one day win. And it's a test of a real Christian, isn't it? A real Christian is a man or woman whose sins have been taken away by the Lamb, by Jesus who died for us. And a man or woman who's been baptized with the Holy Spirit who possesses in their heart the personal presence of God and in whom there begin to be evidences of that in the beginnings of a changed life, stumbling, falling, plenty of failure, but beginning to change. So religion and philosophy can change me on the outside and all that happens is I become terribly repressed because I become aware that there's this terrible mismatch between the outside appearance that I'm giving people in my religion or philosophy and what's going on in my heart, which is still just the same as it always was. But real Christ- And that can be true of formal outward Christianity. Plenty of people have been baptized with water in Christian baptism uh, for whom there's been no change of heart. And and the Christianity is an outside show, and that's a recipe for misery. But real Christianity is baptism with the Holy Spirit, a changed heart, and the beginnings of a changed life. So, friends, if we ask ourselves, why does it have to be Jesus? Why is it that it has to be Jesus? If you're not a Christian man or woman, you're here this morning, 
I want to say to you that this is the Christian gospel, that if you put your trust in Jesus and you join the rest of us who are moral failures as a disciple of Jesus, you will receive, and Peter said this on the day of Pentecost, you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And no one else can do that for you. And if you're a Christian and you're tempted to lose confidence in that, and if somebody says to you, what do you get from being a Christian? And you're tempted to say, I get a tremendous sense of purpose in life. Well, I'm glad if you do. But there are plenty of Buddhists who can say the same about their Buddhism. Or if you're tempted to say, I have peace of heart. Well, bully for you. Plenty of days I don't. Good for you if you do. I'm very pleased for you. Plenty of people will find peace of heart through New Age spirituality, and good luck to them. But I can say this, and so can you if you're a Christian. What do you get from Jesus? He is the Lamb who has taken away my sins, and no one else can do that. And he is the man of the Spirit who has baptized me with the Holy Spirit and poured into my heart and life the personal presence of God who is beginning to change me. And one day that change will be complete. It is a wonderful thing to be a Christian. Let's not be afraid to, 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 to focus on these two central, wonderful, unique truths of Jesus. Let's be quiet uh, for a moment. I'll pray. God, our Father, we thank you for the testimony, the witness of John the Baptist. And we pray that you would turn our hearts and our hopes away from thinking that any other than Jesus can take away sins and any other than Jesus can change us on the inside. We pray that those who are, of us who are Christian believers might rejoice afresh in those wonderful truths. In Jesus' name, amen.